I'm Chris Morrell, and welcome back to The Drawing Board. Over the last couple decades, tech companies, and all kinds of companies really, have been adopting the open office environment, gutting cubicles in favor of more collaborative open spaces. I'd be willing to bet we've all seen the tech warehouse space with few walls and an abundance of ping pong tables. Offices with doors are the past. Standing desks with no dividers are the trendy present. And I'm sure many of you listeners out there see open offices as the norm, perhaps never having worked in a more traditional office space with cubicles and closed door offices. We couldn't help but wonder, how did we get here? How have office spaces evolved since the Mad Men advertising era? Perhaps tech companies made the open office environment popular, but what we want to know is, does this type of collaborative, no privacy office setup really create more collaboration and productivity? Or is it actually hampering productivity? To answer these questions and more, we sit down with Albert de Plazaola from Unispace, a global leader in office design that's worked on spaces for companies including GE, SAP, Slate Magazine, Virgin, WeWork, Infosys, and hundreds more. We'll talk about how we got here, covering the history of American workspace evolution, uncover data on how effective open offices actually are, how people can work efficiently from home, and much more. Okay, let's go. All right. Can you tell us your name and what you do? Hi, yes. My name is Albert DePlazaola, and I lead the strategy team at a uh, design and build firm called Unispace. Unispace. So what exactly does Unispace do? What, what is, uh, can you tell us about workspace design? Sure. Uh, it's actually, um, it's, it's become more sophisticated over the years. Uh, typically, especially in the United States, um, organizations would just move into a space and try to throw as many bodies as they could in there. Um, then something called workplace strategy rolled around. Uh, was actually pioneered by a guy named Frank Duffy. Um, and Frank Duffy looked at organizations and thought, man, we are spending a ton of money on real estate and we're not really using it as an organizational asset. We're just kind of using it as an overhead or you know, um, allotting for it as overhead and trying to put as many people in there as we can. What Frank Duffy tried to do is start to um, kind of record evidence or at least uh, do some qualitative and quantitative data capture around how people work and then organize workspaces in order to support the way people work, to support certain work patterns. So the team I lead at Unispace has uh, you know, carried that work forward using, uh, you know, we've advanced it a little bit using technology and different uh, sort of data capture tools, but ultimately we're still trying to do the same thing, is trying to use the workplace as an organizational asset, uh, not necessarily to minimize the footprint of real estate, but to maybe reverse that and say, hey, how can we make the workplace actually foster productivity and um, engage people or uh, at least encourage people uh, to practice uh, new kinds of work behaviors. So take us back to before that. I yep. mean, and to, before we were using company or workspaces as assets, what? How was the workspace really, you know, pictured, depicted, or thought of? Well, it was pretty hierarchical. Um, it, workspace was allocated by what position you had, and this is particularly true. Um, well, I, let me actually, Chris, let me go back there a second because um, what I would say is historically speaking, Frank Lloyd Wright did some of the more interesting and innovative concepts back in about early 1900. There's a famous example of the, uh, I think it's the Johnson & Johnson building and certainly the Larkin building that explored open office concept. Um, but it was much different. Well, 
somewhat different than what we understand the open uh, open uh, workplace concept to be now. Um, it wasn't a popular, uh, contrary to popular belief, the original open workplace concepts were not very dense. If you take a look at those floor plans and those floor plates, uh, desks were spaced uh, quite generously uh, in the workspace. And in the Frank Lloyd Wright example, you'd have your employees, let's say, on the first floor, and there were manager offices on the second floor overlooking that space. Uh, but it was it was particularly very well designed. And in fact, Frank Lloyd Wright even was involved in designing the furniture and the chairs um, that occupied those spaces. Um, the other kind of movement around that time was something called Taylorism, which uh, was a uh, was a concept that was brought brought from the Industrial Revolution, let's say, in that um, uh, people tr- brought a scientific approach to labor. That it took, for example, like uh, one individual one individual thirty seconds to put ten screws into a widget. Right, um, that was Taylorism, trying to maximize human labor in an industrial um, uh, assembly line. Well, that concept was then transposed or superimposed into the workplace and said, how can we make or how can we bring that Taylorism thought point of view into the workplace when you're thinking more of uh, transactional work and not necessarily industrial labor? So there were some pretty interesting experiments that went on in the early 1900s on how to do that. And if you, if you take, actually, if you take a look at the old pictures from that era, you'll see that workplace, or excuse me, the, the benching solutions that were, or work desks were um, configured almost like an assembly line where you had the foreman sitting at the, at the head of the table. You had a couple of workers. Women, for some reason, were always in the middle wearing the same things. And then you had a couple of uh, people uh, uh, on the end of the tables. But it was the intention was to mimic an industrial sort of assembly line and try to uh, achieve those sorts of efficiencies. That's really interesting. And then let's let's fast forward, uh, you know, halfway through the century. Because yeah. when you started mentioning this stuff in like the hierarchical workspace or office environment, I just think Mad Men. And that's exactly what it was. <laughs> yeah. And I think like, you know, like Roger Sterling and Don Draper's offices right. were big corner offices with lots of light. And then as you sort of get outside of that, you see like some people have small independent offices right. with walls and then there's just like the desks out there right you know for the admins and secretaries um, right so i think everyone can probably be pretty familiar with that type of depiction i mean when did that when did that really start to change well and i'll give you a little bit of history around that is um when you when you t- think of uh, don draper's office right it's exactly the way you described it chris but what actually started to change that is if you think about that kind of in your head, and what it was is, is if you take a think about a, rec, a rectangle, mm-hmm. right? And what you had essentially is offices all around that rectangle on the perimeter, right? And those were if you were a lawyer or whatever you were involved in professional services, that's where you would sit, right? And then you're right, the secretaries or the assistants would be in the middle. The problem though with that was is that the folks who did the majority of the work in these sorts of environments were sitting in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, the attorneys or whatnot or the ad agent or the ad executives were sitting in the perimeter in these offices. But a lot of the times, those folks were actually either out of the office having martini lunches or you know <laughs> visiting clients, right? So what you had was an environment in which the people who were in the office most of the time were in the middle, closed off from the natural light from, uh, from the perimeter offices. So people who were probably not in the office as much as the folks in the middle got private offices with a lot of daylight, mm-hmm. right? And the people who were actually doing the work did not get that. Got it. So I'd like to think that there was a bit of like a, a bit of a proletariat uprising that happened. Yeah. Right. So guys, if if you know if I'm going to come here every day, I want some light too. Yeah. Right. 
So that's where we started to see a movement from uh, interior perimeter offices moving into the interior and allowing some of that daylight to get to the folks that are there every day. Yeah, that's funny. It, when you say that, it, there's an obvious parallel to society and to even ancient society. But as society developed and cities were created, the wealthy people lived often in the hills yeah. and the poor people lived down in the valleys and did most of the work. Yeah. I mean, it's like a, it seems like a direct parallel there. Abs- absolutely, yeah. Um, but I mean, and and as we moving forward and getting ultimately to the present, I mean, my first job at a company was, you know, back, I mean, we're almost, you know, 15 years ago. Right. And th- exactly what you mentioned, and I this was a big publishing company that I worked for, but right. the 60s version of that was still how my office, I mean, there was a little more light, but our office was designed exactly how Mad, Men, Mad Men's office was. So the, and, and, and I would... The question I would ask you, Chris, is what kind of organizational structure did it have? Did that company have? It's pretty. I mean, this was editorial, so right. it was hierarchical in the sense that you know there were VPs, there was a, a VP, and then as we get into like editorials, like editor in chief and editor, senior editor, editors, junior editors, right. interns. So I think, but we did have the perimeter like offices, and we had a little more light coming through to the people who were you know of less lesser stature in the organization. Right. But I think a lot of that didn't really start to change until the last, I mean, you tell me, like 10 or 15 years. Well, and, and you'll still see those sorts of environments permeate in advertising agencies and public. And I only ask you because publishing traditionally is a very hierarchical sort of Good point. Um, uh, industry. Um, and, and typically the workplace mimics the organizational structure, right? Yeah. If it's very hierarchical, chances are your workplace is going to be hierarchical. You see that all the time in law firms, right? Yeah. Um, where it started to change... Um, was, I hate to use this word, but like the, the idea that knowledge work started to emerge. Um, and that, uh, you know, you could argue that previously in the Mad Men world, you, you, you had uh, two kinds of activity going on. You had the folks who were actually doing the intellectual activity, or, or you could say knowledge work, who were the attorneys or lawyers or agency execs. And then you had the, the, the assistants, or back then they call them secretaries, right, who were doing a little bit more transactional work. Uh, well, what we started to see as we moved into the 90s, and technology was absolutely a catalyst for this, um, but that more people were doing knowledge work in the United States, um, and that transactional work was either being automated or being offshored. Mm-hmm. Um, even like, you know, the, the example of when was the last time probably any of us here went to a bank teller? <laughs> it's right? been a while. Or, you know, the, the, the fact that we do our taxes now, you know, through TurboTax, right. that, you know, we don't go into an accountant's office and, and those sorts of things. So uh, increasingly knowledge work um, was, uh, you know, everybody was doing it. Or, or th- there was an increase of knowledge work happening in the United States. But what I think workplace strategists started to see, and this is something that Frank Duffy started to recognize, is that knowledge work involves um, multiple work practices. You just don't sit at your typewriter and type or your computer and do spreadsheets. You're having meetings. Um, you're involved in different sorts of work activities that involve either focus work or concentrated work or informal collaboration, collaboration, socializing. Um, and up to then, right, the only two spaces that people had to do that was either their workstation, an office, or a conference room. Yeah. And so what was happening was the parity of workspaces wasn't keeping up with the, uh, or, or there was a lack of parity between your work practices and the spaces that supported it. What's interesting now is fast forward about 10 years, and there's a guy, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with a guy named Daniel Pink, but Daniel Pink says, we're done with knowledge work. Mm. You know, Everyone's doing knowledge work mm-hmm. these days. Um, now we're to the point where, where, uh, where the United States is leading the charge in conceptual work. 
meaning that we're actually we are the ones that are coming up with the great ideas, right. and those ideas are being executed or implemented offshore or being automated. Yeah. So the real question for us, as actually not just as as designers and strategists, but as employees, is, you know, if we're on the hook for coming up with good ideas, um, and having our, our organizations execute on those good ideas, the question now for us is. What are the work environments that generate the best ideas? Yeah, that's a really great segue. And I think this is it was really fascinating to get the history exactly of what you're talking about of how offices have evolved. But uh, we know you because Udacity is a client of yours, but you've also worked with BMW, Boeing, CBS, Microsoft, Toyota. I mean, what type of projects can can you describe? What type of projects you work for for those type of clients? Um, they vary. Uh, uh, you know, there's a there's a very large software. I mean, maybe I could say this. Uh, you know, that Microsoft has had a very ambitious uh, workplace strategy moving forward, um, and and it's because they they recognized that. Um, you know, when, when Microsoft came in, into prominence, uh, their, work, their work areas were somewhat cellular. They, a lot of them had private offices and whatnot. They recognized in order to keep up with innovative practices or being able to generate new ideas and, and drive innovation, that their work practices were part of that equation. Um, and so they were looking for, um, uh, for spaces that would actually help promote and foster that innovation. So when when you go into the the modern work uh, the modern Microsoft workplace now, it's it's got a, a great energy, it's got a great buzz, it's open, but it's very very well um, well designed because it's it's it was very intentional and they took a look at what kind of work practices do we need to encourage and foster and what are the spaces that um, that are going to enable those kind of work practices. So uh, jumping from Microsoft, I mean, Google and Facebook, I think a lot of people in, in tech in Silicon Valley tend to think that they've popularized, at least Google, the concepts that we've adopted, um, even here at the beginning of Udacity, uh, which is the idea of having this open workspace. Mm-hmm. I mean, are, are these, like, is there data, are these types of workspaces really that great and effective for creating productivity? Well, maybe what I might do is, is take a step back yeah. because, um, because I think go- what people don't quite often understand is that Google's strategy, and, and by the way, Google's not a client of mine, but just from what I observed, um, but, but Google has a very intentional workplace strategy, and that is that they want to remove the inhibitors of productivity, right? Um, what that also means is they want people to come onto the campus and stay on that campus, yeah. right? So they eat there, everything. Right. And when you start to explain that strategy to, to other organizations, because one thing I always get when I do focus groups or, you know, interview folks, and I ask, well, you know, how would you envision your future workplace? And they say, oh, I, I want what Google has, right? And I say, okay, let's explore that, right? <laughs> and it, you're right, though, Chris, it's, but it's not just money. It's, it's is that the right thing for your organization, right? Right, right. Um, I would argue that probably that some organizations value work-life balance a little bit more than maybe some tech firms do. Sure. So they inherently incorporate that into their workplace policy and design. Um, Google, I think Google's strategy is, hey, let's make sure we get people on campus and make it easy, as easy as we can for them to, to, to be productive um, and to stay as long as they, as long as they want to. Yeah. Um, other organizations, that's not the priority. So maybe Google, and, and maybe we can get back to Google, it seems... To me, that Google is almost like the in, well thought out version of this, and maybe where it's going, and that other companies can model after. But I think going back, it's like everybody knows that tech startup that 
they they rent uh, a warehouse right. or you know a, a, an old pool hall and they don't have any walls and there's ping pong tables and you know billiards right. and you know open kitchens and that's I think that is very common and people are familiar with that and it like is there like how do you feel about those type of spaces? I think those are great startup spaces. You know, like um, I, I think what you're talking about are, are these are startups who kind of squat a space where they can and, and make the space work. And I would even argue, though, even within those spaces, there are small tweaks you can do to make mm-hmm. those spaces more um, uh, to perform better. But 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 what I would say to that though is because I get a lot of clients who say, "Well, we started in a garage. Why do, why can't we just have a garage environment?" Um, those sorts of startup spaces, strictly speaking, don't always scale well. Um, because you know, as you grow and as a as a company matures, you start to have a bit of a division of not division of labor, but you start to have other teams. You know, you have HR, you have legal, you have IT, you have sales, you have marketing, you have engineering, and not everybody works or thrives. Not all those sorts of teams thrive in that kind of environment. Yeah. So as you scale, you have to have a work model, or excuse me, a workplace model that can scale. And flex as you do. Yeah, because like to your point, like our legal team can't even have their screens exposed. Right. Like in in marketing, often we're working on you know stuff that's under NDA, and you can't. So it's important that you do have that privacy. And I think so. Moving on a little bit, you have just that. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, not to interrupt you, but just that point. How many how many engineers really want to be next to the marketing team? Right. (laughs) That's a good point. That's why we're on a different floor now. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But you you have a white paper out that talks about different personas and different work styles. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you arrive at those personas and how can people identify which persona they are? So think about persona in, in two ways. Uh, to, to boil it down is think about your, your how mobile you are. And by mobile, I mean, do you come into the office every day, sit at a desk and rarely move? Or at the other part of the, that, that continuum, um, are you never in the office and maybe when you do come in, you're always in meetings and then you leave, right? So there are actually three levels you can think about mobility in three levels. As a resident who comes in, sits at their desk five days out of the week, and, and maybe is at their desk 70% of the time. Mm-hmm. You have another level that we call internal, uh, somebody who's internally mobile. And that person is somebody who regularly comes into the office, but is at their workstation or work point, I don't know, 30% of the time. Yeah, exactly. Myself. <laughs> so, yeah, typically that's what most people are. They go to the workstation, they're, they're in meetings, then they go back to their workstation or work point, bang out some emails, they go to other meetings, maybe they have some lunch, come back. So they're very internally mobile in mm-hmm. the office. Um, and then you have externally mobile, which is somebody who only comes into the office maybe once or twice a week. So there's your level of mobility. So if that's your X-axis, or excuse me, your Y-axis, uh, your x-axis going along the bottom, if you want to kind of graph this out, is your collaborative patterns. Remember that resident I told you about? Mm-hmm. Well, that resident probably isn't very uh, doesn't need to uh, engage in a lot of collaboration. They're always at their desk. You know, uh, executive assistants uh, tend to work this way. Uh, legal uh, attorneys tend to t- tend to work that way. Then, as you go across the the x-axis, there you have what we call like individual contributors. Right, right. Uh, people who go into meetings, go back to their work. Go into meetings, go back and do their work. Yeah. Those people are also typically internally mobile. And then you have just complete teamwork. Right, marketing teams are typically like that. Sales teams are typically like that. So if you kind of plot that on an X Y axis, you start to understand how internally mobile am I, and how collaborative uh, collaborative am, am I, and where you land on the X Y axis helps us understand what kind of work 
components you need, what yeah. kind of workspaces you need. I think that's pretty, it, that makes sense. It seems like it'd be pretty easy for people to self-identify. I mean, and in, in, within these personas, you suggest that some people work better remotely. Um, Unispace works, mostly works with companies, but do you have tips on how employees might design their home offices or personal workspaces? Like, does that, is there a connection there? Well, here's what I would do in terms of working from home. I would, the way we talk about working from home or working mobily is it's just another workspace, right? Um, and it's interesting because, uh, and we can talk about private offices in a second, um, but when I ask folks, where do you do your best, let's say, concentrative and focused work, um, typically the answer I get is, is well, it's never in my office or, or in my workstation. It's either at home or it might be in the office, but between 7 a.m. and 9 p.m., mm-hmm. 9 a.m. when no one's in here, or on an airplane or, on a, or in a hotel, let's say, yeah. right? And if you, take, if you think about those answers, they're all answers or they're all places in which people are not being disturbed, yeah. right? So I'm not entirely – I would recommend that people set their uh, space up at home ergonomically, but if you use your home space to do focus and concentrative work, I would set it up that way. Yeah. Right. And use that as as another space in the whole kit of parts. Yeah. Aside from the type of um, persona that you are, I mean, do is there any research that says certain age groups do better in certain type of environments? Like millennials might prefer more open offices, or and you know, the, I, I don't know. I'm just throwing that no, out no, no, there. No, no, no. Right. So it's interesting because I think there's been a whole cottage industry uh, around, you know, how millennials work and behave. <laughs> um, but the interesting part about it is, is I actually think the um, the desire for certain workplaces is is less sort of inherent to a generation and is more cultural. Yeah, is 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 a little bit more socially conditioned around that generation um, because I've seen plenty of millennials who go to a law office who suddenly love that private office and they don't want to give it up, right? Because that's sort of more of the indoctrination of, or, or that's, that's sort of the cultural norm of the legal market sector. Um, but what I would, and, and there's actually no real scientific evidence to say that millennials multitask any quicker than, say, Xers or boomers. Um, what I will say, though, is across every generation, what is most valued, and this is, and there's actually some evidence to support this, but what's valued in all these surveys around workplace satisfaction is giving every, it doesn't matter what generation you are, but giving people flexibility and choice of where and when they want to work. Hmm. But getting back to your, your original question, I, will, I, I do think this is that millennials are looking for that flexibility and are looking for choice. Whereas I'm not entirely sure if you worked at a company or all, all your or if, if you worked at an organization for 10, 15, 20 years, and now you've suddenly got that private office that you have coveted, yeah. and that corresponds to a certain level of achievement in that organization, um, those folks aren't typically ready to go to a, or, or they're less, uh, they're a bit more apprehensive to go into a more open work environment simply because that office still has some symbolic value to how well they've done in that company. Yeah. I think. I'm sure a lot of people out there, myself included, have worked at companies that have you know gray cubicle walls. Um, is I've heard that there is scientific evidence out there that that can hamper creativity. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there was there a, a drastic shift? Do companies still have those type of environments? Like, how does that how does that play out? Well, I think those type of quite frankly, those type of environments are just soul sucking. You know, they mm-hmm. they. Um, uh, you got high sort of panel walls with these cubicles, and no one can can really see each other. Um, and again, you're restricting your ability to 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 provide or at least to engage in choice in that. Like I've got my my crappy you know cubicle, and I've got a conference room, and those are my two workspaces. Um, 
I, I hesitate to talk about evidence and data because in, especially in workplace, um, you can sort of find evidence to support any kind of work style or any kind of work configuration. I will say, however, if you feel that there is a correlation between effective collaboration and productivity, that there is some evidence to say that, hey, a, a neighborhood style, um, and by neighborhood I mean sort of like a, an open environment that has different sorts of work settings, those sorts of environments tend to be more effective for collaboration. And if you're an organization that needs collaboration, you could kind of correlate that to productivity and effectiveness. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing, though, that, 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 that I, I might also throw in there is, is it's not all about collaboration um, because I think when we hit about 2008, 2009, when, uh, when we got hit by the recession, open work environments suddenly became very popular because you could densify. In other words, you mm. could put more people in open mm-hmm. work environments. Um, and so a lot of uh, facilities folks and a lot of CFOs thought, hey, this is a win-win. We'll shrink our footprint, and then we'll tell employees it's a more productive work environment. Well, that didn't quite pan out. And actually what we're seeing is that people were unhappy with those work environments because they were simply too open, yeah. too loud, too noisy. Um, and some of the data that we're seeing is actually in the last 10 years or so, focus work has gone up and collaboration has actually gone down. That's really interesting. And I mean, to play on that, like I've worked in a lot of these, you know, newer open office environments where you have smaller desk spaces, you know, no, you know, very little, there's no dividers or walls between right. people. And just my colloquial sort of like, as, as you talk to people about that, that you work with, they tend to say they can't get things done. Right. Like not as a whole, it's a good, I think most people think like, as a team, you can collaborate, right. but just my general sense from people is we need a little more privacy. Yep. Like, do you have tips for people that work in those type of, like we have sometimes you hear like these headphones on, don't talk to me policy, right. or even uh, um, I've heard about putting a little do not disturb light right. on your computer. Like, do you, do you, are there things that work? There are, but they're only, <laughs> they're only as effective as, 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 uh, as how well people actually acknowledge that mm-hmm. that's a protocol. Right, and and I'll say two things to that. The, and from a from a um, from a design perspective, or from a planning perspective, zoning is probably your best bet. There is you want to get you want to have your folks who need the most amount of privacy or the most amount of um, con- who do the most amount of concentrated work somehow zoned away from uh, circulation paths or teams that tend to be louder. However, there's even nuance around that um, because you know I, as I said before, I'll, I'll do focus groups with engineers. And I say, guys, what's, uh, what's the biggest inhibitor for, um, for you guys in terms of doing your work? And like, what do you think it is, Chris? Biggest inhibitor for doing your work? For, for engineers. Oh, for engineers? Uh, oh, that's a really good question. I'm not going to pretend to think like an engineer. I mean, I, would, I think we hear a lot about... Um, it's what you actually just said earlier. Yeah, so like you just, you, you're just bothered all the time. Right. Or you, you, can't get, you can't focus because there's too much going on around you, too much noise, people bugging you. Absolutely. Your yeah, you're spot on on that. Uh, and so when I do these things, it's always noise, distractions, and privacy. But once you start asking these guys, engineers, some questions around that, you, under, you start to understand that well, maybe not all distractions are created equal. Because in my experience, engineers actually do like the experience in working within pods. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as the people around them are doing similar types of work, um, and there is some sort of either personal or professional um, 
relevance there. Yeah. You know, they actually do like to know, well, oh, uh, you know, Katie had a date last Friday night. How'd that go? Or, you know, hey, I'm having trouble with this line of code. Can you help me out? Those sorts of um, distractions, let's say, or that kind of noise is actually healthy for that work environment. Yeah. What kind of pisses these guys off is that when a PM who has nothing, has no idea what these guys are doing, rolls into their pond and says, hey, guys, what are you talking, you know, what's going on here? Would you have our, uh, you know, do you have that deliverable ready for Friday? And that distracts everybody, yeah. you know, in that area. And it takes them about 15 to 20 minutes to get back yeah. to their work. So when I talk about zoning, I'm talking about um, trying to prevent those sorts of distractions. Yeah. seems like that you also have to just have, like, company or managerial buy-in to the fact that, like, if you – if you have a, a headphones on, do not disturb policy. Like everyone kind of has to understand that as I'm looking at Kelly, our producer, because I always bug her when she has her headphones on. But there's also just like, this is the real world. This is life. Like someone might just be listening to music and might be totally open to talking to you. So I think there's, you know, <laughs> there's, um, I don't know. I think it just plays out for different people, different teams differently. Well, so Kelly, right? Mm-hmm. So here's, here's the... Again, you've hit on something that I I talk a lot about is that space can only do so much, right? And there's a ton of things you can do with simple etiquettes and protocols. Yeah. In other words, what 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 distinguishes a library space from a conference room isn't the physical space; it's a protocol. Yeah. Right. Is if everybody agrees that hey, in this room from twelve to five. You can go in there. There's no drinking. There's no cell phones. It's a place where you go in there, and it's a library space, right? Uh, maybe in the morning it becomes a conference room or a team room. But just by by thinking about or implementing a simple protocol that's agreed by all, you can shift the intention of that room um, from being a, a collaborative space into being a, a more private and, and concentrative space. To your point about headphones, if you guys all – actually, a huge tech firm that we're doing uh, work for now, I was very surprised because um, they actually uh, – implemented a protocol called the quiet couch, right? And there was a couch inside their uh, their work area. And because, you know, sometimes even if you have your headphones on, people are like, are you really working? You know, can I <laughs> disturb you? So sometimes that doesn't work. But so what they, what they decided to do is on the quiet couch, if you're on the quiet couch, you are not to be disturbed, right? And that is the sort of, or, you know, we can call it cone of silence or whatever you want yeah. to call it. Um, <laughs> But uh, but I thought that was interesting because an area that was meant for a little bit more informal collaboration just through a single protocol was shifted or transformed into a quiet space where people were not to be disturbed. Yeah, and we actually had that here. I was, I was oh, really? walking around earlier. We used to have this a quiet area right. that was mostly couches and like comfortable chairs. Um, and it was the expectation was if you're there, people need to be quiet, and it's kind of in do not disturb mode. And that's a good segue into. I mean. We were talking about Google before. It seems like the evolution, and maybe they got it right earlier than a lot of other companies did, but they have these like hybrid open office, mm-hmm. office spaces. And I've, I've been to Google in San Francisco and Mountain View, and I used to work at Fitbit. We had a very similar space. So there's a lot of nooks and crannies, right. you know, couches, chairs, balconies, phone booths, those type of areas that almost have these like really nice um, decorative settings where when you see someone there, it's really kind of they're doing their thing. You don't right. really disturb them. And then when you need to go back to your collaboration mode, you're back at your desk with right. your team. Like, is that? Do you think that's the best kind of evolution of how this is where this has gone? So I think that's the best evolution for Google, hmm. right? Um, I there are numerous examples I can give you that people who have tried to adopt a Google-like workspace 
and people hate it. Yeah. Right. And in fact, you take a look at Apple's campus, right? Apple, Apple's campus, I haven't been inside of it, but from what I hear, is still somewhat cellular. And even the open spaces they do have, people are rebelling against them. Yeah. Um, so what, what, I would, what I would say about that is I think Google nailed it for Google, but that doesn't always work for other organizations simply because the work practices or the work behaviors are different in different organizations. Like, you can't stick lawyers into a Google-type workspace. Yeah. And, you know, there's a famous – I forget the name of the, um, the advertising agency, but they went to a Google-like model um, somewhere in L.A. And after about a year, they experienced 30% uh, attrition. Wow. And a lot when – when they did exit interviews – they actually said one of the reasons was because of the office shift, yeah. because it was a very hierarchical sort of ad agency that was then then people were, weren't given dedicated offices. It was a free address system, and that's not what they signed up for. Yeah, there was a direct conflict in what the culture was and what the workplace was. Yeah, and when you have that conflict, if you have that gap, uh, that's when people become restless and unhappy. And and I'll just say one more thing yeah. to that is that Google's Google's workplace works because it's a reflection and embodies their culture. Yeah, and their culture is really collaboration. Yeah, I mean, it always has been, even though obviously there's a hierarchy of roles and positions mm-hmm. and seniority. But I mean, from how they hire, on they have a hiring panel, and it's you know it's it's a bunch of different people who are instead of just you know, hey, I'm a director or VP or whatever, and I decide if we hire someone. No, that right. per, that gets sent to a panel, and it's a democracy. Right. You know, so I, I get the sense that, and I get the point that you're making that it's not going to work for everybody. Right. But I think. What we're finding in tech is we we know a lot of people, colleagues, former colleagues, friends that work for all these different tech companies. They they might be going in the wrong direction with how their offices are designed. Right. And I think, again, to your point, I think there's this misconception of what open office is. Open office should not be, or you know, even the term of open office sounds a bit pejorative these days. Um, I think you should think about it as a um, as open office is wants to inherently be what we call like activity based mm-hmm. is providing you with different sorts of spaces to um to engage in different sorts of work practices so for example if if you have to take a doctor's call or <laughs> if you have a job interview and you don't want to do it on your <laughs> in your workstation well there's a place for you to do that right and in fact there's a better place to do that that is intended to support that particular work practice or that t- particular conversation yeah um, or you just get up and go for a walk. Yeah. And that's what we do. And hey, it's healthy for you too. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I, in I, fact, yeah. when, just run, run, the other thing is, is the one thing that actually Google, from what I understand at least, they predicated their early office designs on the idea that people needed to walk around and, you know, sort of have these casual encounters with folks or, you know, these spontaneous collisions. Yeah. That, that, that that's what they really thought added to knowledge sharing and learning. Yeah. That's smart. I'm on board with that. Last question really yeah. is, I want to get back um, I don't know if you have feelings or thoughts or any research around working remotely. So that, that's the other thing I really wanted to talk about is we, I think, you know, tech and outside of tech, like there's people want to have the flexibility to work from home or work from the road if they need to. Um, some companies like Udacity is very pro working remotely. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, we don't care where you do your job from as long as you get your job done. We have Google Hangouts, video conferencing in every single conference room. Uh, so we make that easy. There are other companies, I know recently Yahoo and others that have taken a, you know, a stand from the top and they say you have to be in the office you're, you know, all the time, right. you know, working from home unless it's some you know, crazy circumstance. How do you feel about that? Is there, 
is there, is there any data out there that says you know this is good or bad for employees or just general thoughts? There, there again, I, I go back to there's data that 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 says that employee satisfaction with the workplace increases, and it's probably the only one thing, the only one attribute that has strong scientific evidence around is is the idea of choice, right? The more choice you provide um, an individual, the happier they tend to be with their work environment. So if working remotely is part of that choice, yeah. typically it's well-received. Now, I, I will say, though, Yahoo was a bit of an anomaly. Not, not an anomaly, but, um, but I thought it was an excellent example of how Marissa Meyer understood the value of workplace and of community. Mm. Because a lot of guys like myself thought, you know, when, they, when Marissa Meyer comes up, came out and said, oh, you need to come into the office, that, we thought that was blasphemy, yeah. right? I actually thought that was a good move because mm. if you took, took a look at what she was trying to do, with what her organizational priorities or strategic priorities were, she was trying to build a sense of community again, a sense of purpose in Yahoo. Yeah. And she understood that the best and quickest way to do that is through face-to-face interactions, right? If your organization already has a strong sense of community and camaraderie, then I think remote working, working from home works great. Yeah. But I think if you're trying to establish that again, if you're trying to reinstate a sense of purpose, meaning, and community, um, I actually thought that the idea that people coming back into the workplace was a pretty strong move. Yeah, that's funny. I've, I've never heard it put that way. It actually makes sense. And, I've, you know, we've all been part of companies where working remotely can go horribly wrong. Right. Some, some types of personality, you just, they, you can't stick to a schedule. And I've seen that happen before. So I think Udacity, we're lucky in that it's built into the culture. We hire right. people that we know, we hope are going to be successful in that type of environment. And then we power, empower you with the technology and the flexibility to do right. that. But that doesn't happen everywhere. It's no, just... and it's and, and honestly, Chris, it's also it, it it it's not just a work thing. It's you know a lot of managers are feel uncomfortable managing a distributed team. Like, yeah. how do I know they're working? Yeah. You know, how do I know they're not sipping margaritas on the beach somewhere? <laughs> um, and so there's not. It's not just a matter of providing uh, a policy about working from home, but it's a, training managers on how to evaluate performance when you can't see your employee. Right. That makes sense. So that that's all the questions that we have for okay. you. Is there anything we missed or any trends that you want people to um, go away with? Tips, um, thoughts about working in any type of office that we talk I about? I actually think I get, I get asked about trends and and, and uh, fashion. You know what's 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 going on in workplace. I actually think it's not it's not real sexy, but. I actually think that we're not, I don't think we're going to go to private, back to, you know, the pendulum's not going to swing back to private offices uh, for a couple of reasons, because they're inefficient, and they're not always the best workspaces, depending on what you do. Um, I do think, though, you're going to start to see a shift from uh, these large open offices to a more thoughtful approach as to what, what actually are the space types we need, um, because the, again, um, the, the idea around open offices, hey, we... We might take a hit on individual productivity because of noise, distractions, and whatnot, but we'll more than make it up in collaborative productivity. Well, we're starting to see that more, more collaboration doesn't necessarily mean more effective collaboration. Yeah. Um, and Susan Cain wrote a great book about introverts and how introverts have to live in this open uh, workplace environment, and sometimes they can't do their best work in this environment simply because of how they, you know, how the, they, uh, they naturally work. So Susan Cain's point is this is, where are the work environments for introverts? Yeah. Because sometimes those are the folks that could be the most creative. It's a good point. And I also, I, I really like what you mentioned before about just having the flexibility to, to, to choose your own, you know, work environment or decision or how you go about that. I remember reading a, an article about a study, a decades-long study about people that worked at a big corporation, thousands of people in, in England, and they found that 
the people that were empowered to make decisions in the company had like longevity increase. They got sick less. They were happier at work. And the people who were micromanaged had the complete opposite. Right. Shorter lives, you know, got sick more and just didn't didn't have a good positive outlook on right. the job. So I right. think that extends to this. It's like give people choice, give people the power to make their own decisions and they can right. kind of go about, especially their environment, how they want. Yeah. Yeah. Well, cool. Albert, I don't know if there's anything you want to plug. No, I know. This has been Unispace. great. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Is Unispace.com? Unispace.com, yeah. Cool. All right. Thanks cool. a lot. We appreciate you being here. Thank you. Appreciate it. The Drawing Board by Udacity is produced by Calvin Hu, Kelly Schwarz, and myself, with contributions from Davis Little. Music is provided by premiumbeat.com, and for comments, questions, or to pitch a theme or idea, you can email us at thedrawingboard at udacity.com, or tweet us at Udacity using the hashtag thedrawingboard on Twitter. If you like what you hear, please help support us by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your podcast platform of choice. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.